Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you can tell I'm retired. I've got eight pages of notes for what, chapter five. I've wrote more notes than Nehemiah wrote in the chapter. I was here early. I'm stalling, trying to figure out what I'm going to, need to do. So, even combed my hair and took a shower. So, <laughs> retirement is giving me too much time. Uh, we're going to go through Nehemiah chapter five tonight. And one of the first things we've got to decide is when does this take place? Does this happen during the uh, 52 days that they're building the wall? So they've got the opposition from uh, you know, the rumor mill trying to crush them. Then they had the military approach. And Nehemiah took care of both of those situations. Uh, now something happens in-house amongst the Jews. Uh, and we've got to decide if that happens right here at this time, if this chapter happens during this 52 days. And I'm going to say it does. Some commentators think it happens you know, sometime later. It's just information. But I'm going to present it as if it's happening while they're building the wall. You can be the judge as you read through that. Uh, but I'd like to begin, before we read chapter 5, go back to chapter 1. Uh-oh, uh-oh, chapter 1. <laughs> Took 10 weeks to get this far. We're going back to chapter 1. But Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, he's in Susa, over in, in, uh, in Babylon, over here. And some men have come from Jerusalem, as that's how the book begins. Uh, it says, one of my brothers, which may literally mean his brother. I mean, it's gonna, he's going to come up again later in the book. Came from Judah with some other men. I'm in verse, verse 2. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble. They're in trouble. They're in disgrace. And then the wall and the gates are going to be mentioned. And the next statement is, after saying great trouble and disgrace, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. I'm going to present this now before we get into chapter 5. It's not, something's going to break tonight in the chapter. It's like all of a sudden there's, there's chaos in, in Judea, in Jerusalem. But it's not like all of a sudden it just happened. We're going to be able to read through it and it's going to make a lot of sense that that is when he hears about it, they are in trouble and disgrace. Now, it's easy to say it's because of the wall and no gates. And that is part of the problem. Uh, but as you get into this book right here, and you, you may have wondered, and I have every time I read the book of Nehemiah, there's no wall and no gates, and so they're in trouble and disgrace. Well, there's not very many people living in Jerusalem. We're going to find the population is low as we get through the book. They're going to bring people in. And also, there's really no invasion because they're just sitting ducks. Samaria's not invading the, the Arabs are not invading. I mean, they're, they're putting pressure on them. But this trouble and disgrace, yeah, it may be connected to the wall and the gates. But as we read chapter 5, we're going to find out when Nehemiah arrives, there's another source of trouble here, and that is going to be financial. It's going to, we're going to see that there's going to be, have been a famine that has taken place. Plus, because of the surrounding nations, their roads or their trade is cut off. But we're also going to see that because of the famine, because of the situation, the trouble they're in, they've started borrowing money uh, and putting their houses up. They're putting their, their fields up, their olive uh, orchards, their vineyards. And, and they have, these have been taken over 
by the people you're going to be referred to as the nobles and the rulers. This I can refer to them as, these are the rulers of the people. They're the ones that have finances that aren't going to be hit as hard by the famine. They're going to somehow probably have some kind of alliances going on with, we already see that throughout the book there's going to be people in the leadership position in Jerusalem that have treaties or are in working along with the, the, the enemies around. So there's the famine, the road, but the nobles and the rulers have seen to avoid that problem. And so they're going to willingly give the people money, but you can put your house up as a lien or uh, your field. And what has taken place now, these people have loans that they're not being able to pay, and they've lost fields, houses. The field, the orchard they used to own, they now are having to work in it as a day laborer. They're laboring in the fields they once owned. And not besides that, now the breaking point is probably chapter 3. 2 and 3, Nehemiah comes and says, we need to build this wall. And everybody says, yeah, let's do it. And then last chapter, chapter 4, because of the enemy, no one leaves. You come, you stay, you're not going to go home, you're going to get ambushed. We don't know who's coming in, we have to have checkpoints. So you come, you stay, you work on the wall. So basically, he's shutting down the economy. It's like, because this wall is important. And everybody agrees, even we would agree, we need the wall built. But that now is now the wall. People aren't going home taking care of their fields. The people are not working their day jobs because they're working on the wall. Nehemiah is not paying anybody to work on the wall. It's a volunteer position for the cause of the community. So with the famine, the roads, the trade routes cut off, the fact that they're already, see, in trouble and disgrace. We're going to find out that they're not just losing their homes and their fields. They've come to the point that they're selling their children into slavery. They're, they're selling, they're, they're giving their children, I can't make the payment. Here, take one of my kids until I can pay you back. Well, I'm not sure if you've ever been in debt before, but when you start making deals like that, or if you've ever been in a situation where you get in debt, it's like, well, I'll just start paying a little bit at a time. And then you realize, my gosh, a little bit at a time, I'm going to have to live to be like older than Methuselah to pay this thing off. I, I'm so far behind. It's like, here, take my child, and when I pay it off, you can give him back. It's like, he's never coming home. <laughs> it's like, I'm never going to pay this debt off. Uh, school loans, that's what, you know, that's, some people get into that situation. Fortunately, I went through in the 70s, and that wasn't a problem. But they're in this situation, so they're in trouble and great disgrace. Uh, because there's no wall, really forget the wall, they're already in trouble. Now Nehemiah says, we're going to build a wall. Everyone stay here till the wall's done. I'm already behind on my bills. I, there, there's no money coming in. No fields are being harvested. They can't go to work. And so now we have chapter 5, and I think this is going to take place. This, these first verses while they're building the wall. So if they're going to spend, again, I don't have a number. If there's 52 days that they're working on the wall, uh, early, let's just say the first 10 days, they had trouble with the, the rumor mill. It's like, oh, they can't do it. Your wall's not going to last. That didn't work. And so the next 15 days, 20 days, I'm just grabbing numbers here, they're now doing the military. They're now trying to take, you know, protect themselves. They've got guards standing in place. And now they're saying, that's what, 10 plus 15, that's 25. They're halfway through, and now they're maybe in the second half. And now all of a sudden you get chapter 5. It's like, hey, it's been a month and a half, and we were behind. We were in debt. They took our kids, 
and we haven't made any money for the last month. And so chapter 5, that's the way I'm going to present it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now the men, and a key phrase, not, not to be derogatory, but a key phrase, and now the men, this is the NIV, English Standard, slightly different, we'll go through that in the notes. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. And again, that, I, I don't want to spend too much time on it now, we're going to come back to it. But the very fact the wives are upset, well, where's the men? They're in town, they're not coming home. I've got the kids, I've got the debt, I've got no money. Uh, and now the wives are starting to like send emails. We and our sons and daughters are numerous. I've got a lot of kids to feed. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. And no one's, making, no one's even thinking about food right now. You're thinking about wall, wall, wall. Which is, yeah, go Israel, but we've already had a famine. We're already in debt. We already are cut off from the, uh, the, the, the trade routes. Does anybody even think about food? Moms are at home with the kids. we got a lot of kids here. Well, what's left? I haven't sent them off into slave labor. Others are saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. This is a list of all the problems. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to su subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. I mean, how am I going to make this big amount of money? Well, okay, you understand the idea. I don't even have a business any longer. When I heard, now here, verse 6, Nehemiah, when I heard their outcry, in other words, this appears, it's like he came in, did the night tour, got the wall started, and now all of a sudden this starts, and everything has been tough, but we're going to pull through this, and all of a sudden, the, uh, potentially the damage he's causing by having the men stay and work on the wall, all of a sudden the wives start complaining. It's like, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And we'll talk about that. I pondered them in my mind, and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. In other words, in the last few years of coming back, we've been buying Jews back from captivity, back from slavery, to bring them back to Judea. Our purpose is bring, to bring Israel back. And now that they're back, you buy them and put them in slavery yourself. That's what he's saying. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could, not, they could find nothing to say, which in any kind of a debate, but especially in the Bible, silence means I have... That, you gave up, you lost the argument. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Then this is a very important verse too, verse 10. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. See right there what he just says? I'm doing the same thing. Now probably not like the loan sharks are doing that are abusing the people, Nehemiah has come in, he's got some cash, he's got some money, and so he's running, he's probably running it like a bank. You know, I'll loan you money so you can catch up on your, he's probably running it like a business. But this has gone, this is now a, a situation of poverty, 
poverty does not call right here. This situation does not call for a loan. This calls for a gift. And that's what he's going to do. He says, now that this is brought out to my attention, I've been doing the same thing. I and my people are loaning these people money. They're never going to pay it back. They don't have fields. They've lost their kids. There's, there's been a famine. Guys, listen, that's over. This is now time to give these people and get them back on the equal playing field. So you can see that in verse, verse 10. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We'll talk about all those verses. Verse 12. They all say, the nobles and the rulers, who are the elite that have been actually abusing the people. I mean, I mean again, it's, you need morality. You need some kind of ethics. But who wouldn't, if people are just giving you their stuff and you just give them a loan, and they'll, yeah, my house, whatever, you're like, well, hey, I'll give you a loan too, and you just start collecting houses? I mean, who wouldn't? That's just, we call those guys good businessmen. Nehemiah says, well, at this point, this is not good business. This is, this is evil. You're abusing the people that are, have, have no other option. So again, there's that fine line between being a smart businessman and also seeing an advantage but crossing that line where you're abusing the people, driving them further and further down. And again, that's the way every culture ends. The elite get richer and they start abusing the people. It's the Hamas generation. Nothing to do with the, the, the Gaza Strip. It's the violent generation of the, of the scriptures. The Hamas generation, they, they drive the people into poverty and then devour them with their teeth. That's the whole fourth generation Hope for Mary's last generation is based on it. And Nehemiah has already got that happening in his culture. And he says, stop. We're not going into the fourth generation behavior. And they're there in the sense that they've gone through a, a poverty or they've gone through a famine. That they could collapse very quickly. So Nehemiah puts a stop to it. And he was, again, in a sense, part of it. They say, verse 12, we will give it back. And, we'll, and we will demand, and we will not demand anything more from them we will do as you say. So the, the nobles and the rulers, the elite, the loan sharks say, you're right, we've crossed the line. We'll give it back. Now watch what Nehemiah does. Then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and the office officials take an oath. We're not just going to shake hands. We're going to go to the temple and you're going to take an oath before the Lord that you're going to give all this stuff back. And then when they've taken the oath, Nehemiah pronounces the curse I also shook out the folds of my robe and says, in, the way, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise, so, so may such a man be shaken out and emptied. Again, shaking out of his, 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 his robe, his garments, they'd put stuff in there, their phones, you know, their credit cards and stuff, and he shakes it out. In other words, uh, it'd be us like emptying our pockets. He says, May this was gonna, if you don't keep this oath and then take everything out of your pockets and throw it on the ground, your phone, your credit cards, it's like that is what God's going to do to you. You'll have nothing uh, and shakes it out. That's the idea. That's the curse of the oath. At this time, the whole assembly said amen and praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. So that really ends the details of what took place that year, uh, 444 uh, B.C. Now, this next part, the second part of this chapter, is now Nehemiah 
probably when he's putting all of his notes together, all of his archives, putting the book together, because uh, he's going to now reflect back on this situation and add some more. This information goes all the way up to the end of his time. Here it is. Verse 14, Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, that's why he was the ruler, the governor, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. He's describing his behavior financially as the governor. You won't recognize this. You have no one in political office or leadership positions that does this in America. Okay, so don't say, oh yeah, I know that guy. No, you don't. This is like, you know, some kind of a fairy tale. He says, I am not going to take anything. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. In other words, the assistants would also provide their own tax code. It's like, uh, you know, like the, the mob. Okay, you're going to do business on my street? I'll just come by and collect some kind of tax, you can call it, or protective finances. And that's what they were doing. That's what the previous Jewish governors were doing that very thing. Thus the people were in a time of distress. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God. I mean, he realizes these are the people of God, and this is God's plan, and he's there to advance God's plan. Out of God, reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to work on the wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Which is like, why would you be acquiring land? Well, why wouldn't you? You're the governor. You've got access to all the information, inside trading, everything. And you can take your money and you can find out where the people are the weakest and start buying up the weak people's land. Oh, yeah, give them a nice loan or something, something political to make it look like you're a nice guy. But after 12 years, he owns a good portion of Judea himself. He buys no land. Furthermore, and now here he describes how big his table. Now, he's not talking about food for himself. He's talking about, when he talks about my table, he's talking about everybody that he's in charge of that came with him, his staff. They were on the pay. Now, these people that are on his staff, they're on the payroll. So they're going to have pay. They're going to have provisions. And he can't say, guys, we're, no one's going to no eat for 12 years. He's got to feed them. He's going to have to pay them. They're in the government. But he's not going to put the tax on the people. He says, therefore, this is how big his household was. 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. This is the English or the NIV translation. We'll look at it again in the English Standard. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Delegates that are traveling from one province to another. They'd travel through uh, and they'd stop by. This is where they'd stop. Stop at the governor's house for the night. And they'd, they'd eat the meal. Each day, one ox six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me now he didn't eat all that but he's in charge of these people that are eating on so he's got to have he's got to pay for an ox six sheep and a bunch of poultry to feed 150 plus people and every 10 days in abundant supply of wine and all of all kinds so every 10 days we got an abundant supply of fresh wine came in 
I, I, the, the, the alcoholic people that, that don't like that type of stuff, they, they want to tell you they're bringing in grape juice or something. But go ahead, you can play that game if you want to. But they're bringing in the finest wine. Remember, Nehemiah is a wine connoisseur for the king of the empire. And now he's getting fresh wine every 10 days. Yeah, it's not Welch's, okay? But nonetheless... In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. Again, there was an allotment in the contract. Here's what the governor's allotted. He says, I never touched that money because the demands were heavy on these people. These people are struggling just to get their kids back out of slavery, and I'm going to tax them so I've got food. I'll get the money somewhere else. And then verse 19, his last verse, Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. In other words, he said, I am not going to reap the benefits here. I'm not buying land here. I'm not trying to prosper here. I'm trying to serve God and serve his people. Well, wow, aren't you dedicated? Yes, but I'm waiting for the kingdom. May God, and he says right here, remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I've done for these people. I have sacrificed and sacrificed, and I don't, I'm not upset about it because I know you're watching, and my reward is coming. So that is the NIV right there of the uh, text. And we're on our notes now. Page one of the notes, the English Standard Version is typed in there. And uh, point one, the very top, just introduce the very things we've talked about. When do these events take place? Uh, chapter five, verse one through 13, likely during the 52 days. Uh, point B, the workers staying in Jerusalem instead of returning home added to the hardship. Uh, and I write in there, chapter 1, verse 3, the, when he came, there was already great trouble and shame in Judea before he even leaves Susa. And it's connected to the wall, but we're going to find out it's much bigger than the wall. I mean, they're, they're giving their kids into slavery. And they've lost any kind of land they had, they've, they've had to give it away to get money to, to buy food. It appears Nehemiah has just been made aware of the hardship and uh, these three points, work on the wall took men away from their homes. Work on the wall prevented work on the fields at home. Work on the wall was a not, a not a paid position, so the men labored for a living for up to 52 days with no money. If you're, you, you can't take care of your fields, you can't go to work, but you're working for 52 days on this wall. And again, that's why I think that, that line, even the wives, the wives are like, okay, I mean, not, you, don't, you hear them talk about the men, the men, the men, all of a sudden the wives, it's like, I mean, they're the ones that are taking the brunt of this back home. It's like, what are we going to do? Um, uh, so chapter 5, verse 1. Um, yeah, and point 2 there, but beyond that. Surprisingly, this is a problem of oppression of the Jews from within Judea by the elite Jews. Last week, we had problems with Sanballat and Tobias and Geshem, the, the Arab and the Ashtarot. Ashdodites coming up and giving them trouble. Now they've got those problems resolved or at least under control. Meanwhile, the Jews have trouble in, in their own house. Okay, chapter 5, verse 1 on page 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So we get two groups of people. The people, the laborers apparently, and their brothers, which we're going to find out are the elite or the rulers and the, uh, uh, the nobles. And I just highlight a few words there, uh, the outcry. You know, I try to find some great insight. It means outcry. It means they're raising their voices. Um, and again, it's been going on. Chapter 5, verse 2. 
for there were those who said, now here's, I got this listed here, problem one. Chapter 5, verse 2, we begin a list of problems, and I've mentioned them already, but here are how they're going to be identified. Uh, the first problem, for there were those who says, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So this could be the problem of the wall. It's like you've got all the guys working on the wall. We've got a lot of kids back here in these villages. Uh, we need grain. I mean, you're not working. You're not taking care of the fields. We're already coming out of a famine. The wall, we don't have time. To, and, and Nehemiah, and this, is, this is the part that you can kind of miss. Because the book is about Nehemiah building the wall. He's got opposition all around. But right here, you can see the humanity, the humanistic. Uh, we care about people. That, okay, we're going to solve this problem. Guys, we can't build the wall. And so the wall project is over. Go home and take care. Priorities first. You've got to feed the kids. We care about children. Go feed the children. Don't build the wall. See, Nehemiah is like, well, we, that's not possible. We've got to build the wall. We need a wall. So he's got to go somewhere else. So he's going to be looking at a bigger picture, a bigger uh, answer to the problem. Just say, okay, the wives are complaining. We don't have the men at our home making, getting any food. Okay, go home. We, won't, we can't build a wall. Everybody's mad. No, everybody go home. Uh, and then we, now we still got a problem with the wall. He doesn't do that. He, that's the first complaint. And that's what I say. The first group seems to complain that this is made while the men are building and all that. Uh, and I top of page two, I paraphrase, we have children at home that need to eat and be kept alive. Give us time to get grain by working in the fields or laboring at our day jobs for pay. We don't have time to build a wall. That's not an answer. Chapter five, verse three. There are also those who says, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Now we find out uh, it, it doesn't seem like there's a famine in the land right now. It hasn't been mentioned but the fact that they say when they go to, go to Susa and tell Nehemiah there is you know, great trouble, distress, that probably would mean there's been a famine taking place. So there, a famine is a factor. And during this famine, the crops weren't growing, but they still had to pay their bills. They still had to buy grain. And so what they did, they went to the elite, the nobles and the rulers who had money, and they said, can we take out a loan? Well, certainly you can and they'd put their houses or their vineyards uh, as a lien. Uh, and so they've loaned out, their, their fields are, are loaned out. And many of them have fallen behind, and they're going to have lost those fields. So there's a famine. So that's the point to the second group. The second complaint is from those who had already been financially defeated by the elite Jews when they had to take loans out using their fields, vineyards, houses as collateral just to buy food during the famine that had recently occurred. In chapter 5, verse 4, this is the third one. And there were those who says, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And now you're going to have the Persian tax. And this tax, we'll talk about it here for a minute, but in a sense, in a very limited way, the Persians were taxing, and again, that's the Persian Empire. They, not just, they don't just conquer you and say, okay, you've got to, wave the Persian flag, they conquer you, and then they put an official over you to collect taxes, and those, that money goes back to Susa. And so the Persian tax on their fields would go to Susa, 
to the Persian Empire, and we're going to see this in just a moment, the idea that some of that would come back to, to Nehemiah for his food, you know, the, the governor's portion. And if that was the case, if he was spending the money like a crazy man because, well, the Persians are paying for it, it's, it's coming from the government, it's free money. And so Nehemiah is spending money like crazy and got two oxen and more cattle. Come on, everybody. Well, that's going to increase the tax on the people. And more money is going to be taken by the Persians because Nehemiah is spending like, like a, you can say either Republican or Democrat if you want to. It doesn't matter. <laughs> they're, they're, they're spending like, a, uh, uh, what's that guy in Ukraine? I'm so glad Israel told him, yeah, you can't come. He said he wanted to go there and get some TV time in Israel. Nonetheless, okay, I got to stop, right? Okay. Now, about the taxes. Uh, point three, this is just some background information. The Persian military tax revenue at this time was very demanding. They've got to they've provide a mil To run this empire, they've got to have military. Estimates say Artaxerxes collected $20 million a year in taxes. With the numbers we're throwing around our government, that doesn't sound like very much. Uh, very little of this money that was collected from the provinces was spent for the benefit of the provinces, so it's not coming back. Once the money was gone to the empire, it stayed there. And this is a fact. They've got documents. They've got research. I've got a little bit of it here for you. The custom in the Persian Empire, in Susa, Persepolis, uh, the custom was to bring in all this money, the coins, the gold and silver coins, melt it down in the hot liquid, in a liquid state, it would be poured into jars. Okay? And then once it was cooled, the jars would be broken and they'd stack it up. They would just, they were taking currency. Remember when we used to have silver coins? Remember when the, when the, it's 65, I think, they came out with the combination. I remember that was a big deal. Uh, but we used to have silver coins. Well, they would collect all those coins. Just imagine someone collecting all the silver from your economy and then melting it down and putting it in, you know, what do you call them, bullions? How do you say that word? Uh, you know, just, well, gold bars, silver bars, and just stacking them up. And pretty soon, where's all the change? Where's all the cash? Uh, the person is, is in the treasury. They're just, they're just collecting it. Uh, and so because of that, I think it'll say here somewhere, because of that, uh, inflation is going to, it's going to, price are going to double during this time period because they're pulling so much money out, coinage out of circulation and melting it and keeping it in Susa and Persepolis. Uh, and that's when point D. When Alexander the Great plundered Persepolis in 330 B.C., he sent incredible amounts of treasures on donkeys and dromedaries, or the camels, 3,000 of them, because he had so, he had, he had so much gold. He, he broke into these treasuries where they'd been piling this gold. It was just crazy. It was like, a, it's like some kind of a, a fairy tale. And just took low, just shipping gold, and he had to protect it. Didn't, he's marching across the world. He's trying to protect it and try to box it up. Plus, he's spending it crazy and buying people's favors and stuff like other militaries. At Susa alone, Alexander, this is where, where Nehemiah came from. At Susa alone, Alexander found 9,000 talents of coined gold. That's 270 ton of gold, he found. 270 ton of coins yet in uh, Susa. 
in, in, the, in the government, not like in going home to home, in their treasury. In their treasury, it, they didn't print paper money to, you know, the gold the standard for the dollar. They just took it, and you don't have it. It's gone. It's just taking money off the street. And 40 talents of silver, or 120 ton of silver, was stored as, as, as how do you say that word, bullion? Bullion? It's bars of silver, what it is. Okay, so that's what Alexander found there. And so that's where the Persian taxes, they're paying taxes for Artaxerxes at this time on their fields. If you own it, you've got to send money to Susa. I own in Judea. Yeah, but you've got to pay taxes to Susa, to, to Artaxerxes. And then some of that would come back to Nehemiah, and that's why Nehemiah says, no, it, I'm not going to take any money. He appears to be spending his own money. You wonder what kind of man is Nehemiah? What kind of aristocratic standing does he have? Is he introduced as the cupbearer? I mean, it comes across sometimes when you tell a story that he's like just a servant that just brings in the wine. You're like a waiter. But he's, he's much more than that. And now he's here. He's, he's come over here for 12 years to rebuild Jerusalem. He's supported by the Persians, but he's not going to use his allotment. He's not going to use the tax money for his own food. Now, he's going to spend some of it, whatever he's got, but he's not going to... He's going to buy his food for 120 people by himself, apparently. Where is he getting? He doesn't own land. Okay, those are just questions. Oh, point E. The Persian lost coinage in a circulation because of this, and it led to inflation that resulted in 50% rise in prices. Also, documents from the Persian Empire outside of Judah, not talking about this story, but throughout the Persian Empire, and then I've got a story from Egypt. It says outside Judah, who, that the inhabitants of other satraps or provinces also had to mortgage fields and orchards just to get silver, just to pay their taxes. This is not Bible information. These are just cuneiform documents and people trying to figure out how we're going to pay the Persian tax, and they're mortgaging all around the empire, all their land, just to send money to Persia so they can melt it down and put it in their treasury and pay for their military. Often they lost their property and became laborers on their own land. They used to own the orchard. Now they show up and work on the orchard. Uh, Egyptian documents record landowners becoming peasants. They own the land. They had to give up the land. And so there's nothing to do. So they flee to the city to survive in the city where they can maybe have some kind of a job, something. The food's there. They were arrested masses of them and taken back by force back to work the farms that they once owned because they didn't want to work there they wanted to be in the city that's what it says right here forced back to farm the lands okay and then problem number four that's not mentioned here is going to be the trade routes that's not mentioned in here but i'm adding it to it because the route coming from the the east is controlled by ammonites coming down the coastal plain Ashdod, coming from the south, the caravan routes, the Arabs in, in Idumea that have come up there, they're cut off. So everything is going to be high-priced and out of, you know, exploited there. Chapter 5, verse 5. Now, our flesh is, is as the flesh of our brothers, is what they're, this is still the complaining. Our children are as their children. So you've got the elite, and you've got those that are just the working class that are now being driven into poverty. They're being driven into poverty and going to be devoured by the elite, just like the fourth generation. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been 
enslaved. We'll look at that word. But it is not in our power to help it. We have no option. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I used to have a business. I used to have a field. Now they've got it. I just, I got to give up my family. And here in top of page three is the uh, Hebrew text. And I got a box around the word for enslavery. It's, it's built on the word kabosh, which means to subdue, bring into bondage, subjugate. But in Esther chapter 7, verse 8, remember when Xerxes has Haman over to his house and he goes out and, and uh, Esther tells Haman that she's a Jew and he falls down and is begging her for mercy and Xerxes comes back in and he thinks she's being assaulted. That's the word that's used, which also means assault or rape. So when it says our daughters have already been subdued or subjected to bondage slavery that would include that is also a word used for assault and rape we just we just gave them up uh, and that's all in the details there chapter 5 verse 6 when nehemiah hears this he says i was very angry when i heard their outcry and these words and out the angry uh, it means to burn or be kindled with anger and his anger is basically his, his concern and care for the people, that there are people within his community that he's working with trying to rebuild that are actually undermining his effort. He's trying to help these people, and these people are making their burden, stretching out, making it more difficult. He's got problems in Samaria and Idumea and all around the map. He's got problems now inside, and he's very angry. And again, it's because of his concern. There's nothing wrong here with being angry. Remember Ephesians. Be angry and sin not. Anger is not a sin. It's sinning if you be, re respond in the wrong way to your anger. God is angry. Jesus became angry. There's going to be times there's righteous anger. In fact, we could push it this far. In our society today, if some people are not angry, the sin is you're not angry. You should be angry and ready to take action. I don't want to get angry. You just don't want to get involved. You should, there should be something, somewhere in your life, there should be something that makes you angry enough to respond. Now, if you respond in a sinful way, that's sin. Nehemiah is angry, and he doesn't have to confess his sin. He's angry when I heard their outcry. I'm angry that I'm, these people are complaining, and then I find out why they're complaining. This is not right. I can't believe this is going on. We're going to fix it. And so, chapter 5, verse 7 explains exactly what he did. So I went on a rampage and started throwing things and tearing things apart and shouting obscenities. No, no. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. So he, first of all, the idea there is he thought. He takes his thoughts, he thinks. We'll talk about, we're going to read some translations here. He thinks, he's bringing, he goes, what now, okay? Boy, I'm angry. Now, it wouldn't be nice if someone was angry like that. Like, usually when I'm angry, there's some kind of indication that I'm angry. It's not like, what's wrong? Oh, I'm angry. It's like, uh, I can't even say I'm angry without having some kind of, you know, tone change. But nonetheless, I'm not saying he was, like, passive about it. But he does take it internally and begins to analyze, okay, I have a problem. And then he says, and brought charges against the nobles. He says, what is the problem? Is it these wives that are complaining? Is it because this wall is too big of a project? Is it up here Sanballat? Is it his problem? What 
I'm really, this is a bad situation. I can't blame the, the wives. I can't blame the men. I, uh, I can't just stop building the wall. Okay. The weak link on this is the nobles. The wealthy people. And he's not saying it's bad to have, but he was already himself running himself like a bank, was loaning out money, because he says it. He said, I'm going to stop. Now, he wasn't doing it in an evil way. He was trying to help people. See, banks can try to help people. Banks can also rip you off. But these people, he found, he's, he's angry about the situation, and he finds the problem. He thinks about it, finds the problem, and says he brought charges, and that is going to be a legal term. He's going to file charges. Now, he's the governor. He's, he's the leader. It's not like I've got to build a case. I've got to present this to Congress. I've got to, you know, get an attorney. He's the governor, and whatever he says is going to go. That he's going to make the decision. But he is going to bring charges, and he's going to get some witnesses. I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. So again, while we're built, this is why it's hard to wrap your mind around this. But at the same time, it's not. They're building the wall. And they've got 52 days to do it. They're just working, working, working. And in the midst of this, after they stopped the military attacks and all the slander, they've got this thing, got guards set up in position. All of a sudden, the wives start complaining, we got no food. I mean, it's not just one woman. It's like everybody's coming. It's like, what are we going to do with these children? It's like, what's the problem? It's like, we don't have any land. We don't have any money. It's like, it's been going on. We've had a famine. We've lost everything. So Nehemiah stops, apparently. He's angry. Thinks about it. Makes charges against the nobles and has, again, a great assembly. He calls everybody in. I would assume, now, you know, I don't know. They stopped working on the wall. Probably kept the guards in place. They stopped working the wall bring this great assembly, and this great assembly is going to be witnesses. These are all the people that are like, yeah, I used to have an orchard. That used to be my vineyard. We don't have a house. We're living in the street. It's like, why? I, I, you should got to be more financially responsible. We didn't have any food. I mean, there's no food in the land. I had to sell my orchard for a meal. Well, who took it from you? Those guys. These guys have been collecting stuff, and they're, they're, the rich are getting richer. These guys are being driven into poverty. So that's where that's at. That's that verse right there. I took counsel with myself, brought charges against the nobles and officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. We're supposed to be building a nation again, and you're taking advantage of them. And I held a great assembly against them. And there's the words, if you turn to page 4. Uh, here, I wanted you to see some translations of this first line where he says, I took counsel. NIV, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. English standard, I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and officials. Berean, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and officials. King James, then I consulted with myself and I rebuked the nobles. New American standard, so I thought it over and contended with the nobles and the leading people. And Young's literal translation, my heart reigneth over me, and I strive for the freeman and with the perfects, or prefix. With, so the freeman and the prefix would be the nobles. Now what it says right there, so I 
uh, I, I, my heart reigneth over me. If you can do this, if you look up there in, in verse 7 in the, in the box, I don't have it underlined, but that the last phrase that is the phrase M-A-L-E-K in the Hebrew in the transliteration. And of course, because of Tyler's class, I can, I can actually read the three Hebrew letters there. I'll spare you the demonstration. I'm not real good at it. Tyler could do it a lot faster than I. He's so much faster than I am when we do our flashcards. He's just like, he's, and I'm like, I can do it, but I process. I stare at the card, think about all the options that are no, and then choose an answer. He's like, just like, it's like, it's like he's cheating, but he's not because he's just like, he just knows it. It's like, so I am definitely either, he's really smart and I'm slow, or you can definitely see that age difference of a fresh mind and a mind that's just like, you know, I don't know. But nonetheless, the, the word is malek, which is king, the king. And so that's where you get that idea. Somewhere in there, the word king, I thought to myself, I took control, the idea of reigning, ruling, I took control of, of my thoughts right here. My thoughts, I, I, I thought, I took counsel. And even the literal translation of, of Young's is, my heart reigneth over me. My, my thoughts, I took control. I got angry and started ruling that anger and came up with an answer. Again, right there. Be angry, but sin not. I mean, you, you're going you're gonna to get a lot of things done if there's some anger, if you have a reason. We think it's a sin, but usually it's because of the way you respond in your anger. It's like, I want to fix this. Think of all the things that you're angry about in culture, that I would like to fix this. Instead of just, you know, complaining about it or tweeting about it or whatever you do about it, is you're actually like, what are we, I constantly, I, what am I going to do to fix this? This is, I'm really ticked off that we've got an open border. Yeah, me too. Ah, uh, you know, wait until next election. It's like, okay, you're angry and you're just spouting up. Hey, I'm not being, I'm being critical, but in a fair way, I hope. It's like, so what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about whatever? Anyway, Nehemiah does that. He's in a different position than you and I are. He's the governor. But nonetheless, um, and there it is. The assembly is the witnesses for legal charges. Uh, point eight underneath there, the nobles and the rulers were following a strict business relationship, but were acting as harsh loan sharks instead of fellow Jewish brothers trying to rebuild a nation. So again, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. They're just doing it the wrong way. Um, okay, chapter five, verse eight. And said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back, this is Nehemiah talking, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. So that would include the Assyrians, potentially, in 722. It would include definitely the Babylonian captivity and any that are dispersed from the Persians. Uh, it would also include those that have already been, when he gets there, he finds out there's people who have been sold into Samaria and Ammon and down to the Arabs. And he says, and we've been buying those people back with government money or whatever he can do. And he says, and now we find out you're the one selling them. When you buy them, and then you sell them off for a profit. So he's chewing out these nobles because they're actually, while Nehemiah is trying to gather the nation, while God is trying to gather the nation, these nobles are actually acting like Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar. They're dispersing the Jews. It's like, well, what are you doing? You're, you're acting just like a Babylonian or an Assyrian. As far as we were able, we, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that may be, be sold to us. You're selling them, and then we go say, hey, are, are you a slave? We'll buy you back. So you're profiting off of us. You're selling them. I'm going over there buying them. 
so you're actually just selling so I can buy them back. No, this is going to end today. And chapter 5, verse 9. So I says, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? So one of the things they're taunting him about would be, oh, Nehemiah is here to buy some more slaves back. Yeah, well, we just got him from so-and-so who's working in his front office. So one guy's selling him out the back door, Nehemiah's sending people over there to buy him, and they're taunting us. It's like, guys, we're destroying ourselves, and they're laughing at us. Think of a nation that would be doing that to themselves and the world just laughing at you because of your stupid policies. Hmm, I'll stop there, let you fill in the blanks, which you could take the rest of the night. It's like, the nations are taunting us because you sell them, and I go over there and buy them back and set them free. You sell them back. Okay, so I says, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, now here, here's where he confesses, I'm in on this too. And, I, and not in the evil way, but he says, I'm going to stop it way up at this level. Moreover, and he says, I've got it underlined there four times. If you see in the, the, Greek, or the Hebrew text, I've got I in a box and underlined, then my brothers underlined, my servants underlined, and then let us stop. He's not saying you, you. He's been saying you, you, you. Now he says, even I have been loaning these people money. The point here, like I said before, this is not a time to loan them money. This is not a time for a business transaction. This is a time for a charitable gift. I'm done loaning money. I'm going to start giving it away. That's what he's saying. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Yeah, I'll lend them grain. Okay, you'll owe me this much. I'll lend you the grain. Joseph did the same thing in Egypt. By the time Joseph got done, in fact, they've, they've done studies on Egyptian power bases. And right around the time of Joseph, if you get into the study, all the kings around the rulers of the different provinces in Egypt, they all collapsed. And Pharaoh, that Joseph worked with, controlled. In fact, you read it in Genesis. He owned all the land. Everybody was in famine. Joseph had all the grain. He worked for Pharaoh. And they'd say, well, we need grain. Well, what do you got? Looks like you've got a... Uh, a country over there or you've got a, a province I'll take the province and give you the grain and so by the time the seven years are up Joseph had done this very thing to the land of Egypt for Pharaoh now that's what's happening to these guys they're losing everything so he says and so Nehemiah stops it moreover I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and again let us abandon this exacting of interest in other words stop the loaning uh, at point one, Nehemiah catches himself doing the same thing. His fellow leaders that he's working with on his staff are doing the same thing. And this is not a time for, point three, it's not a time for loaning money, but for giving money. This poverty called for financial gifts, not a financial shovel to dig deeper and deeper into debt. Chapter 5, verse 11. His answer, return to them this very, now this is drastic. Now can you imagine, well, this is a, it's the year of Jubilee. You know, they had the year of Jubilee in the Law of Moses. You know what happens in the year of Jubilee? It, it was never celebrated. It was never, they never actually followed through on it from what I've been able to tell. But you know what the year of Jubilee was? In the 50th year, it would be like resetting the Monopoly board. You have 50 years and everybody's buying and selling and loaning. And, and, but you got your family estate. You got your family inheritance. And maybe things got tough and you didn't handle the business and you lost the farm or you sold the farm or loaned the farm, whatever. After 50 years, boom, we all go back to the way it was distributed, 
at the beginning. And if we start all over, it wipes out all of the uh, uh, inflation, wipes out every, everybody's now back to the evening playing field. And we play again for another 50 years. Does that make sense? That's, that's what it, and so that's what he's doing right here. He's in a sense, without mentioning it, he's applying the year of Jubilee. No, we're done. Everything goes back. And it's, um, it's amazing. He says, today we're going back. Moreover, okay, verse, verse 11. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, and their olive orchards, and their houses. So the four things, fields, vineyards, orchards, and houses, they go back to the owner. And no strings attached. Yeah, but they still, no, it goes back. Give them their field back. Get out of their house, let them move back in. And the percentage of money, now this is again tough to understand this, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. In other words, that could refer, they, they get their house back, their vineyard back, their orchard back. But also, that either means any profit that you made, any profit you made on that vineyard while they weren't in possession of their possession, you had it. You, how much money did you make over that four years? Give them their money back. You worked for them, give them their money back. I, but I, I, yeah, you used their land to make money, and you kept the money. Now give them their land, and all the profits go back. That could be one way of understanding it, or it could be and any interest. In, how do you spell interest? How do you spell interest? Any interest that they've been paying you, that you've, you know, they've got to pay you a monthly payment, that money, that money is returned. Anyway, either this, besides the land or the house go back, one of these things also is going back. It wasn't as sweet of a deal as you thought it was. All that money you made on interest, send it back. Or all the money you made on their field, you worked for them, give them their money back. And so that's what it says right there. And you can read it yourself. First, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And the word... Uh, exacting is from the word nasim or nasha, meaning to lend or become a creditor. So, and then the hundred, that right there, it, it comes up, it, the word is translated in English standard, percentage. If you look in the box down there, it is the word 100. It is 100. It is the same word as this tower right here, the tower of Mea. Mia, a hundred, like a hundred soldiers or something, that's Tower of a Hundred. That word right there is also, you can see it right there in the box, same word, it, Mia, a hundred. And so that means a hundred percent, or that means uh, you're going to pay them back uh, one hundredth, which would be like the percentage of interest, the loan, pay, you know, interest. And that would be a 1%. Now, if I'm doing this right, that's great. If I'm not, you can correct me. 1% would be the interest rate right there. That would be over a, a year. But they could be charging 100th per month, which then would translate into 12% interest rate. And so it uh, depends on, we don't know exactly. This just says percentage. It's like, and leaves it there. Uh, so they're getting something back. Again, the profits, the interest, they're getting 1% back, 100% back, something. But anyway, there's that right there. And I tried several different places trying to figure out if anyone gave me some more information. 
And a lot, of, a lot of commentators just read right through it. It's like, yeah, right, nice play. It's like, tell me what this means. Because if you don't, I'll make something up. Okay. Nehemiah, the Persian governor, he got all this stuff. I've written this all down. Chapter 5, verse 12. Then they says, this is amazing, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do it. I mean, there's a great assembly there. They're kind of trapped. I mean, these are, they're, they're, there's, a, in a sense, a mob. He, he created a controlled mob setting, brought in them in, and they're like, oh, we've got all the money. It's like, it's time to give it back. Plus, they, they, they may have had a conscience. I mean, they may have been forced. Uh, we will restore these and require nothing from them. The debt's paid. We're done. We'll do as you say. And then Nehemiah pushes it one step further, like I says. Okay, let's all shake on it. No, no, no. We're going to do more than shake on it. We're going to do more than sign a contract. We're going to go stand before the Lord, and you're going to tell the Lord you're going to do this. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. They took an oath before the Lord. And then, like I said before, Nehemiah gives the curse. I also shook out my fold of my garment and says, when he, uh, he's going to have a garment, you know, a, a cloak, and there'd be pockets in it. There'd be folds in it, like you didn't put your stuff in here. He takes it, he takes his pockets, pulls his pocket, shakes everything out of his pockets, and so there's nothing he's got. He's nothing. I have, I have nothing. It'd be like us throwing out our credit card, our phone, our, you know, whatever weapon you're carrying. It's like you just throw everything. I, I, I have nothing. I also shook out the fold of my garment, or the pockets, so, and he said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. You are going to go broke if you don't keep your promise. Not because I'm going to do it, but the Lord you swore an oath to will drive you into the ground. So, may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, or so be it. So everybody there took the oath or said, amen, God is going to judge the man who doesn't give everything back. And said amen and praise the Lord. Hey, we just fixed a major economic problem. I mean, wouldn't that be nice to in one day fix the economic problem? We're missing one thing. It would be the fear of the Lord. That would be the thing that would drive this thing to completion. It's hard to do it in a secular humanistic society where live for today, for tomorrow we die. It's like, well, we'd like to have you give everything back. It's like, why? Well, because there's an eternity to face. Don't understand that. So here we are. And the people did as they had promised. And here's the second part. I'm going to finish this up, I hope, because we do not want to spend more time in chapter 5. Basically, I've already read through it. Uh, moreover, from that, uh, uh, that time, I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, years neither i nor my brothers ate the food allowances of the governor so he does not ever it was allowed it was it was in the budget he did not touch the budget it was, it was an, an overflow of money there I, when he got done after 12 years there's 12 years worth of daily allotment for food in the budget never touched it I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna spend because that's just gonna put more tax on the people uh this is a great line, verse right here to figure out the years and basically it's 445 B.C. to 433 B.C. is, uh, is what he's talking about. Uh, point two, on the bottom of page six, Nehemiah, after 12 years, at this point, see, he's writing this in 433 or after. He's going to go back. Remember, uh, and I, I've got to quit because I have to pick this up next week. 
Remember when he left, Artaxerxes gave him a certain amount of time. It looks like he gave him 12 years. Imagine that. Can I go to Jerusalem? Yes. How much time do you need? I need 12 years. Okay, well, make sure you're back in 12 years. And so after 433, he goes back and checks in with Artaxerxes. It appears he leaves his brother as the governor. He goes back. But then in chapter 13, we'll get there, he returns for either a second term as governor or simply as a visit as a delegate. Okay? Just to kind of come back and check on the progress. And that, so he, that's in chapter 13. Just so you hear it right here, bottom of page 6. This is chapter 13. It's verses 6 through 31. This is just verse 6 and 7. He says, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. So he's going to record some things that happened in Jerusalem after 433 while he's in Susa. He says, while this was happening, I wasn't there. For the uh, 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked to leave the king and came to Jerusalem the second time. And then I I, and I then discovered the evil Eliashib had done for Tobiah. Remember the enemy Tobiah over here? Eliashib had been left in charge of part of the temple here. He comes back. Nehemiah, when he comes back to check, he finds out that one of the main men, Eliashib, has, uh, has been cooperating with Tobiah. Watch this. Preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So it's like once Nehemiah leaves, the players go back in place, start making treaties and deals, and Tobias, who had been kept out, now had his own apartment on the temple mound right here, pre-representing not the interests of the Jews or Judea, but the interests of the Ammonites. And I'm sure he's not the only one. Sambalet had a representation. So there's people there in the heart of the government, the heart of the religious center. When Nehemiah comes back, say it would be 432, we're not sure about all those details, but it's after he goes and returns. When he comes back, they've come right back in and they are representing the interests of all the other nations at the downfall of Judea. And Nehemiah, if you read it's like he gets angry again. And this time he starts throwing stuff. He starts emptying the, the apartment out. It's like, and, and rightfully so. Just like Jesus turned tables over. We'll pick this up next week. But that's kind of the deal right there of what he's doing. And anyway, I kind of referred to it already about him taking care of his own house, not putting the Jews at a disadvantage. And he kind of adds that in as, as an example of what he wanted everybody to do. But he said, I want you to know, I was doing the same thing for 12 years. And then he said, ends the chapter says, and I... I ask that God remember what I did for his people. And, uh, and, and he's doing it not just because he's a nice guy. He's doing it because he's got faith and knows God is watching. You've got to treat people right. But I don't need to get my share here. God's got my back. And he says, may God remember what I've done. Okay, I'll pray and we're free to go. Father, we thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah. We ask that we ourselves would examine our own hearts, that we would be treating people fair, but also that we'd trust you and continue to do the right thing, that we would respond with the, the righteous anger in the right way, not just be, be upset, but be able to do things and make corrections in our world that we see as having problems. We do thank you again for this opportunity. We pray for our nation. We pray for the world. And ask again that we may see revival before the return of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here.